0: Oh, we're starting a new series today, though. We are, um, we are in the final series in the book of Romans. Um, we're calling this series All Things New. And what we're going to be talking about for the next five weeks starting today is as those who are saved by grace through faith, as those who, or as the Apostle Paul says, who are raised to walk in newness of life. Over in Romans chapter 6, Paul says that if you're in Christ, you have been, you have been buried with Christ in baptism unto death, and you have been raised to walk in newness of life. So, what does that new life look like? Like, What does it look like? In Romans chapter 8 he says we're more than conquerors. Right? All these great truths that we've been reading about. We've been set free from sin and we're alive to God in Romans chapter 6. We've been justified by faith in Romans chapters 3 and 4. So what does it look like to live like that? Uh, How does that impact my week? And that's what Paul gets into starting in Romans chapter 12, is this life of all things being new, everything being brand new, new relationships, a new way we relate to one another, a new way we relate to the world around us. And and we're going to see today that it, it starts right here in these first eight verses of Romans chapter 12. See, when Jesus saved you, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, uh, we think about Jesus saving us from our sin, right? He saved, he saved me from sin. He saved me from death. He saved me from hell, right? And we think about things like And all that's true. But the, Jesus didn't just save us from something. He saved us to something. Okay, he saved us to a new life in Christ of all things being new, a whole new way of living, right, of a transformed life. And it's kind of like if you were drowning, right, in a pool over here and I was to come over and I was to save you from the water or somebody was to grab you by the hand and they were to save you, right, and you'd say, wow, you saved me from drowning. You saved me from the water. You saved me from death. But they also saved you to dry land. All right, they saved you to living and saved you to, uh, you've, you've got a new lease on life, right? So there, there's, there's two sides to the coin, and starting in Romans chapter 12, we're getting into this life side, this new life that we have in Christ. And that's what this last section of Romans is about, what we've been saved to, all right, what you've been saved to. And in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, what I want to talk to you today about is about being moved by mercy. Moved by mercy. Let me ask you, what moves you? What what stirs you to action? Right now, a lot of times when we talk about being moved, we think about just emotion. Right. So maybe you're moved emotionally by Hallmark Christmas movies. I don't know. Maybe it's uh, old war stories and war movies and things like that. Maybe whatever it may be. Right. uh, That moves you in in that way. But when we really talk about being moved, what we mean is something impacted, something affected me in such a way. That I was different, right? Sometimes the arts do that. Sometimes music does that. Sometimes uh, a movie you can see can do that, right? Uh, you could see a, a war movie or, or Schindler's List or something like that, and it could have an impact on you that, that makes you think differently about certain things. It can, it can impact you, right? We talk about being moved by something. Well, in Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul begins to unpack for us what it looks like to be moved by the gospel, to be moved by God's mercy. Uh, God's mercies are, are are run throughout Romans chapter twelve, but especially verses nine through eleven. And so, but these things should move us towards something. We should be moved in a new direction, and that's what's going to be revealed for us in these eight verses. So, look with me at Romans chapter twelve, verses one through eight. But we're going to start. I just want to read the first two verses. We're going to talk about that, and then we'll go to the uh, the next the next few verses. Look with me at Romans chapter twelve, starting in verse one. Paul writes, "I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God." which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. All right, so Paul here is his appeal in these first couple of verses is based on, we see very clearly, the mercies of God. I appeal to you by the mercies of God. God And as I said, God's mercies run throughout those first 11 chapters, but that's kind of one of the themes of chapters 9, 10 and 11 that we just did a series on. Now, he talks about how uh, God works according to mercy, meaning that none of us deserve. God's grace and God's forgiveness. We, we, mercy is, is when God w- withholds from you what you deserve and gives you grace instead, which is what you don't deserve. And so God operates on the, according to mercy. Our salvation is according to God's mercy. We, we got what we didn't deserve and we didn't get what we did deserve. And so this mercy or this compassion is another way to, to say that, uh, is, is, is how God operates towards his children. And as those who have experienced mercy... Paul is telling us here in Romans chapter 12 that we need to live in light of that. Specifically here, we see in verse 1, he he uses it to call us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. But generally, I like what Douglas Moo says about this. He says, the mercies of God are really the motive of the next few chapters, and they really are. Because we are to live all of the Christian life motivated, moved by the gospel, God's mercy, what has been shown us in Christ. So as we get into this text, a couple of questions I need to ask you. Number one is, have you experienced God's mercy, right? Have you experienced God's mercy? Not have you read about God's mercy, right? We can study God's mercy. We can read the gospel. We can listen to people teach and preach about God's mercy. We can go to Sunday school and hear about God's mercy. We can go to vacation Bible school as a kid and hear about God's mercy. But have you experienced God's mercy? Do you know what it's like to be lost and then be found? To feel condemned because you stand condemned and be forgiven and set free. To be enslaved and given freedom, right? Do you know what it's like to be dead and then alive, right? That's what happens at conversion, right? When we experience God's mercy. Maybe you've never experienced God's mercy. Maybe you've read about it. Maybe you've studied about it. But maybe you've never experienced God's mercy. And Jesus died on the cross for your sin and my sin so we can experience God's mercy. We can only experience it through faith in Jesus Christ. The other question I need to ask you is, have you gotten over God's mercy in your life? Maybe you've experienced God's mercy, but have you grown cold to it? Well, let me ask you this. How often does the cross cross your mind? (laughs) Is it just when we take the Lord's Supper together, take communion together? How often do you, when you pray, do you thank God for the forgiveness he's given you in Christ? Do you thank God for the cross? Do you thank God for his mercy? What kind of impact does it have on your daily choices that Christ died for you and purchased you for himself, that he's forgiven you of your sin, those sort of things? Have you grown cold towards the mercy of God? This is important because we need to be moved motivated by God's mercy. We need to live in light of the mercy shown us in Christ. And there's four particular things in verses 1 through 8 that I think God's mercy should move us towards. And the first one is right here in verse 1. Number one, we need to be moved toward total surrender. Total surrender. Total surrender to Christ. Total surrender of our lives to God. He says we need to be a living sacrifice. Yeah, the language he's using here um, in this first verse is Old Testament sacrifice language, right? It's In an Old Testament, uh, in the, the worshiper would take an offering and it would be sacrificed for their sins, right? They would kill that lamb and they would kill that dove or whatever it was. They would kill, they'd offer that offering, that, that, that pigeon or that lamb or whatever it was for an offering unto the Lord. And so... That's the language he's reckoning, but it's interesting because he says it's a living sacrifice, right? In the New Testament, we know that Jesus has paid the ultimate price. We don't offer lambs anymore and... Birds or anything like that. He don't want us to set up an altar over here in the corner and you bring your lamb you know, once a year and then I go over there and I sacrifice the lamb. And We don't do that anymore. Jesus is the lamb of God, the ultimate lamb of God that all that was pointing to. And so we don't, we don't need a sacrifice for our sin. Jesus paid the ultimate price, so we don't need that anymore. It's not about killing an animal. It's about living for Christ is what he's talking about here. Offering our lives up. To Christ instead of offering the life of something else. It's about surrender. Total surrender. He's saying in light of God's mercy, we should offer all of us up to God as a form of worship because God is worthy of all that we have. He says we should present our bodies. Now in context, he means more than just your body, but not less than it. He means your whole life, all of who you are, but also the body counts. And that was the thing to say in that day as it is in our day. It was not uncommon in that day for people to hold a view that the body didn't really matter anyway. What you you did in it didn't ultimately matter. They just kind of saw their bodies as very disposable. Many people did. But that's not Christianity. Not at all. What you do in the body matters. And what you do with your body matters. And, And Jesus stakes his claim over the believer's entire life, including the body. It's not just about how we think or feel, but... How we live matters. The choices we make, the places we go, the things we do, the things we say, the choices we make, all these things matter and what we do with our bodies matter. And Paul is calling us to live in a way, he says, that is ultimately holy and acceptable. Just as the Old Testament offering was to be unblemished, we're to strive to live an unblemished life before the Lord, set apart and distinct. We are to be holy for he is holy. Not so that he will accept us in terms of salvation. He accepts us because of the sacrifices of Jesus. But we are to live in such a way that is pleasing to the Lord. That's what we're called to do, is those who, are, who have been bought with the price of Christ. We, we are to live in total surrender. And he says this is what worship really is. That's what he means when he says this is your your spiritual worship or your rational worship. It is rational. It is spiritual. But what he said, this is what worship really is. It's not just confined to a place and time. You know, Jesus said that the true worshipers were going to worship him in what? In spirit and in truth. That there was coming a day, he said in John 4, that it's not going to be like, hey, I go over here to worship. But, hey, I worship all the time everywhere. It's about how I live my life. That's not to discount corporate worship. Corporate worship is commanded in the Bible. We gather together because God wants us to, we're supposed to, and it's good for our soul. But this cannot be a substitute for 24-7 how I live my life. That's called hypocrisy. (laughs) So if I come here and say I worship because I attend or I sing and I listen and I give and I do all those sort of things, but then I just live how I want to during the week, well, I'm I'm not truly worshiping the way the New Testament calls me to. And at the same time, if I say that I'm trying to live a godly lifestyle to please the Lord, but I refuse to engage in the local church, as we're going to see here in a little bit, I'm not worshiping correctly either. The Bible we're going to see here in a little bit calls us to both. It's total surrender of myself unto the Lord. And listen, the enemy of total surrender is this. I'm going to get on all four of these. I'm going to give you the enemy of moving in this direction. It's compartmentalization, compartmentalizing your life. Protecting things and say, and offering the Lord this but not giving him this and trying to draw lines and trying to put God in boxes and corners in your life. And and we kind of we kind of do this by human nature, not just with God, with anything, right? We we, we you know it's kind of like well, we change gears when we walk into work or when we walk into home, and depending on who we're talking to, we know we begin to relate to people in different ways, and but God asks us to live before him in total surrender and total authenticity. Let me ask you. What is typically the cleanest room in your house? And if you were to clean, go home and you were to clean today because you had company coming over, what's the first thing that you would look at and clean? The entryway in the living room, I'm assuming. Now, maybe it's already spick and span, but that's because you kept it clean, right? Right? That's the first, why would that be the first? Now, your home might be different. Maybe it's laid out different. In my home, you're going to walk in, you're going to see that open area and you're going to see the, that's the first thing you go. So if I was going to go home and clean today, right? That's the first thing that you're going to look at because if I'm having company over, that's the first thing they're going to see. The last thing I'm going to worry about is a closet somewhere, Right? And so we're going we're gonna, to, the place that we have guests in, that, those are the areas we tend to focus on first. The kitchen, those sort, the bathroom where the guests are, all those sort of areas the areas you tend to touch first. And then, you know, if you ain't got time to get to a closet, you're not going to worry about the closet. Because, man, if a guest goes in my closet, I'm calling the police, right? We, but that's a way to compartmentalize in a way. We're, we're, we're saying, well, you're not going to go here. You're gonna, and sometimes we get in this mindset and we kind of treat Jesus like he's a guest in our life. And he's not a guest, No, he's the owner. (laughs) If you're a Christian, he's the owner. He's not a guest. You don't get to decide where he goes and what. It's his house. (laughs) Your life is his life. Your body's his body. Man, your business is his business. And so he calls for total surrender of our lives. Let me ask you, what have you refused to pray about? What have you refused to offer to God in worship? What areas of your life are you compartmentalizing and not allowing Christ to walk into? Your relationships, ethical things, finances. There's an old saying, he's Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And it's really true because lordship conveys the idea of totality, of authority and ruling. And he calls us to total surrender. Is God's mercy in your life moving you daily towards total surrender? It's not just a one-time act. We've got to totally yield our lives. It's a daily choice, right? This is not about conversion. Yes, at conversion, it begins. But it's about every day making the choice to yield my life to Christ. And secondly, we need to be moved towards continual transformation, continual transformation. There in verse two, we're given a choice. We can be conformed to the world, or we can be transformed, right? By the renewing of our minds. In other words, we can become more like the world or we can become more like Christ. It's a choice that we're given. He says, do not be conformed, but be transformed. Because the enemy, I told you I was going to give you an enemy, the enemy of transformation is conformity. The enemy of becoming more like Jesus is becoming more like the world. And we're constantly making choices in one way or the other. What does that mean? Well, he says, do not be conformed. It's, it's in the passive tense in the Greek. In other words, this is something you are to prevent from happening to you. It's like you're caught in a current that's pulling you that way, and you have to prevent conformity. It's a a change that doesn't come from within, but it comes from pressure without, right? There's a pressure. Someone said it this way. One commentator said it's. He's saying, do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. (laughs) It's like the world's trying to squeeze you into its mold. And the world we live in is constantly trying to press us and form us to think like it and live like it and behave like it. And you, as a Christian, will either be conformed more today to the world or transformed more today to be more like Jesus. And you have a big stake in that because you get to make choices. And our choices are one way or the other. Let me, think about it this way. Have you ever driven a stick shift? Who's driven a stick shift in the room? Right? Okay. Good half the room. Okay. Now, if you haven't driven a stick shift, I'm going to catch you up a little bit on this. There's a learning curve. And I remember my first car was a stick shift, right? And, so I, and I had to learn to drive a stick shift before I got My dad had a stick shift, so I had to learn to drive on that. And the trickiest thing on a stick shift is when you're sitting at a red light on a hill, right, going uphill. And you have that thing sitting in neutral, and you got the brake on or whatever, and the light turns green. And you have to go without balling a tire, without peeling a tire. I'm using Alabama language. I'm hoping you understand what I'm saying here because in, we don't have hills here. So, if you learn to drive a stick shift in Florida, you probably don't know what I'm talking about. But in Alabama, there's a lot of this. And so, you're sitting there like this, and you got to go, and you got to get that clutch and that gas just right, or you're, you know, or you're rolling the other way, and you're backing into somebody. It's kind of tricky. Listen, life, the Christian life, is lived on a hill, it's lived on a hill, and if you're not working the clutch and the gas to go forward, right, and to be transformed into more and more to become like Christ, you are rolling the other way. It is pulling you. The world is pulling you the other way, and you have to make the decision to choose transformation over conformity. The world's constantly trying to cause us to be conformed. Our only other option is to be transformed. So Paul says, don't simply resist conformity, right? Right? It's not simply keeping our feet on the brake, but we got to push the gas here. He says, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Transform means to change into another form. The Greek word is where we get our word metamorphosis, like a butterfly, right? Like a butterfly. That, that, and it, it, That's the picture here. It's the idea of displaying on the outside what's on the inside. So, God has given you a new heart. It's not a perfect heart, but He's given you a new heart. And that new heart that loves God and loves people has to work its way out into how you actually treat people and the things you do and the things you say and the way you live at work and at at church and at at school and, and in the home and everywhere begins to work its way into your life. It's in the passive. So in other words, he's commanding us to do something that we can't do on our own. He says, be transformed, and he writes it in the passive like it happens to us. Because it's something the Holy Spirit does. It's something the Holy Spirit does. He talks about transformation over, he only uses this word two times in the, New, uh, it's only used two, three times in the New Testament. Once is at the transfiguration, when Jesus is transformed before the disciples, and they see him in all his glory. And he uses it over in 2 Corinthians 3. To talk about the idea of being transformed to be made more like Christ. And that's what he's talking about here. Let me read it to you. 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So who does the transforming? The Lord. The Spirit. The Holy Spirit does this work in our life. That's why it's in the passive. But we got to participate. We got to yield our life we got to lean into this. That's why he commands us to do something, right? We can't transform ourselves, but we can choose to participate, to yield, to surrender our lives, to engage in the renewing of our minds. We have to cooperate with what God is doing. Cooperate. He says it happens through the renewal of our mind. The battle for your spiritual life, it starts right there. In the mind and in the heart. And the only way to see this kind of transformation he's speaking of, this continual transformation, because it's not a one-time thing, it's a process that happens over the course of our lives. The only way to see it happen, the becoming like Jesus, and the character that he's calling us to, the fruit of the Spirit, is through the renewing of the mind. We need God to renovate, to transform our thought life and set our minds on the things of Christ. And the word renewal here means to literally to make new. To make new. And there's a sense in which we are new. You say, I've been made new, right? There's a sense in which that's theologically true. But since we are, we need to continually pursue living the new life that he's called us to, setting our mind on things above. What want you to think about this. We started in Romans back at the first of the year. We were over in Romans chapter 1. And the Bible describes all of us when we were without Jesus. And anybody that's without Jesus, this being an unbeliever, it describes our minds working this way. It says, verse, Romans chapter 1, verse 28. It says, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So the fall, in other words, affected our thinking. So that we run away from God instead of running to God. So that we rebel against God instead of loving God. It's not human nature to want to yield our lives to God, but it's sinful nature to want to do opposite of that. But because of the gospel, we can now become people who are renewed and we have a renewed mind. So we're seeing the gospel come full circle in our life from Romans chapter 1 to Romans chapter 12. And instead of minds set against God, we can have minds that are being made new day by day for his glory. And this is how transformation happens in your life. This is how total surrender happens in your life. I think what happens in verse 1 can only happen if verse 2 is going on. I don't think you'll yield your life in totality to God if you're not being renewed in your mind. Or I don't think I will either. But our life will begin to change. We'll begin to yield our lives more and more as as we're renewed in our minds. So if you want to pursue life transformation, if you want to pursue continually being made like Christ, becoming more like Jesus, you need to seek a renewed mind. And this is the Holy Spirit's work, and it's done through the Word of God in your life. Reading the Word, studying the Word, praying the Word, applying the Word, bringing your life in line with the Word of God and the will of God. As we meditate on the truth of the gospel and begin to think in line with what the gospel tells us about God's love for us and about what he's done for us in Christ, we just, it's leaning in more and more into the gospel and to the truth and the word of God. Paul says when this happens with these renewed minds, we can now discern God's will. His good, acceptable, perfect will. The mind renewed by God will long for and will know and will apply the will of God. We will crave God's will. We will desire to do God's will. And we will recognize God's will more and more when we walk into situations. Sometimes we walk into muddy water, right? And we're like, I'm not sure right from wrong here. And many times the reason the water looks muddy is because our mind is not being renewed so we're not thinking clearly. It's not as much the situation is unclear as our thinking is unclear. And as our mind becomes more clear, as we begin to think with the renewed mind, the water seems a little more clear, and we can see through it a little bit, and we begin to understand what God's will is in that situation. Some of us this morning may be struggling to make what should be obvious Christian decisions because our thinking is muddied, because it's not being renewed by the Lord and the Word of God, and we're not not leaning into that. So we need, if we want to pursue continual transformation in our lives, it, it starts with the renewal of the mind. And that's something we, the gospel should be moving us this way. Total surrender, continual transformation. But not only that, Look, let's read verses 3 through 8. Romans chapter 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function, so we though many are one body in Christ, individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So the third movement here, God's mercy should move us towards sober self-judgment. And this is a product of the renewed mind. Sober self-judgment, thinking of yourself soberly, as he says, that's a product of the renewed mind. Notice that the linking words there, verse 2 and verse 3, is, is think, right? And mind and thinking. And so he's saying, listen, part of that renewed mind, you'll begin to think about yourself in, in, in the way that God wants you to think about yourself. As our mind is renewed and our lives are steadily transformed, more and more we offer up our lives to Christ. And now notice, one of these effects will be, how we think about ourselves. Paul warns us against thinking too highly of ourselves. He would, as John Stott points out, not want us to think too lowly of ourselves either. The problem in Rome and the problem that we tend to have is to think too highly of ourselves actually, but you can think too lowly too. He wants sober judgment. So we must not think too high or too low. We have to think in ourselves in an accurate, sober way, adequately understanding who we are. Right. I used to love, you know, I used to watch um still comes on. It went off TV for a while, but now it's back, I think, like American Idol. And I used to watch it back in the day when Simon Cowell was on there. Y'all know who that is? And he was the mean judge, right? That's how that he was kinda that was like it was a character, right? That he was playing on TV or whatever. And Simon was the mean guy, right, or whatever. But people would come on there, and they couldn't sing, and they couldn't, you know. And somebody had told these poor people they could sing. And I don't know. They, I still watch the show, but now they don't show these people as much. I think that we finally just learned that, that we were just being mean to people for no reason, I think. And so they, 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 these people come on, like, I'm going to win America. I'm going to be great. My mom says I'm great. My dad says I'm great. And then they, they, were just, they were just horrible. And nobody had ever told them that they weren't good. And then Simon was the judge that brought some sobriety to the situation. He'd say, you're horrible. Right, and he wasn't nice about it, he was kind of mean about it, right? And, and back, back then, when the show was like that, all these people would watch, right? Watch these people be humbled, but a lot of times it was low and too far and they were being humiliated or whatever. Well, Paul is saying, listen, we, have a, we can have a tendency to get out of whack in how we think about ourselves, and we can think too highly of ourselves and we need to be humbled, or we can think too lowly of ourselves and we need to be encouraged, but we need to think, it's important that we think. Soberly about ourselves that we have correct judgment, not too harsh and 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 not too fluffy, but a sober thinking. And the gospel does this. The gospel has a way of regulating our thinking. Love what Tim Keller says about it. He says, in the gospel, we learn that we are so sinful, Jesus needed to die for us so we could be saved, but we're so loved that he was willing to do so. See that that, that's sobriety in, in thinking about yourself. I'm I'm so sinful, I need a savior. I'm so loved that Jesus was glad to save me. So one ditch that we can fall into is that we can think, well, I'm, I'm, I'm just a sinner, and that's all I am. Well, that's one ditch that you can fall into that's not a biblical way to think about yourself. You're more than a sinner. The other ways is just to think, I'm just loved, and to miss out on the fact that you're also a sinner, Right? Biblical thinking says, yes, you know what? It starts, first of all, with where the Bible starts. The Bible doesn't start, by the way, with you're a sinner, does it? This Bible starts with you're made in God's image. You're an image bearer of God, created with dignity, value, and worth. That's where the Bible starts. And then you learn, and I'm a sinner. But God loves me so much, he's sent, sent a savior, right? And you learn all that in Genesis 3, 1 through 3. And so, so thinking biblically about yourself is understanding, yes, man, I'm made in God's image. Yes, I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I've got flaws. I've rebelled against God. I deserve to be punished for my sin. All those things are true, but God loves me and he sent Jesus to die for me and, and, and God cares about me. And if I'm in Christ, I'm a child of God, right? And you gotta have a holistic picture of who you are. And the gospel regulates our thinking about ourselves because what we need is humility, but not hopelessness. We're both those who have sinned and those made in the image of God. We're both sinners and we're children of God if we're in Christ. The gospel's like a thermostat in our life so we can adjust how we think about ourselves. Not just a not just a um, not just a thermometer but a thermostat that has the ability to change how we think about ourselves. And the gospel calls us to be humble and to center our lives not on ourselves but on Christ. And we need to be self-aware and realize life is not about us. The the gospel humbles us in that way. You can't grow spiritually if you're full of you. You have to be full of the Holy Spirit. And if I'm full of me, I can't be full of the Holy Spirit if it's all about me. See, the enemy of sober self-judgment is typically self-intoxication. That's why he uses the word sober. (laughs) Because we tend to get drunk on us. That's just human nature. We... We like ourselves typically. Now, some people, I I get there's other, I'm talking about generally. We can think unhealthily about ourselves in other ways. Don't misunderstand me. We've got a problem and an epidemic in that in our culture too. But many of us in the room maybe struggle on the other end of that. I like what Robert Mounts writes about this. He says, since the metaphor suggests intoxication, one might say that in Rome, they were in the danger of becoming egoholics. And that can be a struggle. We live in a world that encourages us to be intoxicated by ourselves, right? Social media is a powerful drug. People just have to know what I'm thinking about this. They just got to know. They got to know what I think about what's going on in the political world or what's going on over here or what's going on over there. We don't care, right? I know we don't care as a general rule. It's a temptation we all, I just got to let them know, right? Right? i got to post this post so they'll know what I think about that. How will they know how left-wing or how right-wing I am unless I tell them every day 12 times? A wonderful button called hide that you can use for that, by the way. Listen, but social media trains us to think like everybody's got to know what I'm thinking all the time. No, we don't, Right? And we all struggle with it, and I'm not bashing. I have that stuff. I engage in that stuff. I use that stuff. I love to tell you what I'm eating and where I'm at and what I'm doing. I like all that stuff. I live away from all my family, right? So I like engaging. There's good reasons for all this. it's There's it's, it's a good thing to it, but there's a negative component, too, that we begin to think that the world revolves around us, and it don't. It doesn't. It doesn't revolve around us. Sober self-judgment says I matter to God, but I don't matter more than other people do. I'm made in God's image and love, and I'm also a sinner in need of a Savior. It says, I have things to offer because I've been gifted by God to serve his people, but I'm only one among many, and my gifts don't matter more than other people's gifts. I need to give, but I also need to receive. I need to receive, but I also need to give. That's sober judgment, and the gospel moves us there. Fourthly and lastly, we need to move towards corporate participation. The gospel moves us towards corporate participation. Verses 4 through 8, Paul moves here very quickly from personal to corporate. The church is described here as a body. Just like our bodies um, are made up of many members, right? One body, but many members. Uh, We have legs and arms and a heart and a brain and all this, right? Paul says the church works that way. So Paul says this is the church. We are one made up of many, right? One made up of many. And this is where the idea of church membership comes from. If you've ever heard that, like, why do you call it church member? It's not like joining a country club or joining the YMCA. That's not the point. It's playing on this term that is used both in Corinthians and Romans, that we are members one of another, like body part members, and it means we affect one another. And here what we see is the idea of individuality and community all come together here in this passage. It's because the enemy of corporate participation in the body of Christ is hyper-individualism. In Christ, I'm to live out my individuality, who I am in Christ, with my gifts in the context of a diverse community. That's what God calls us to. That's how God's wired the church. And my identity in Christ cannot be fully known and lived out and experienced without Christian community. Because God has wired it that way because I'm a member of other people. We're, I'm a part of a body. And that is how God has designed it. We are members one of another. And I can't pursue the renewed mind and the life transformation that this text calls me to outside of community. Can't do it. Not to the degree that, I'm, that, that God calls me to. This is all one passage, right? Listen to what, I like what Pastor Jimmy Scroggins said. He called the local church the arena of transformation. And that's what you see in this text. Calls us to transformation, and then he's given us the arena where this happens. Life change. Life change is a community project. It's something that we walk through together. Transformation and being a living sacrifice and sober self-judgment all happens through Church involvement. In fact, being involved in a community helps to sober your thinking. We begin to learn that we need other people and that we're not the only thing that matters. And this moves us. And this, this new us that is now moved by God's mercy towards surrender and transformation and sober self-judgment is also moved towards corporate participation in the local church. The moment you got saved, you became a part of the church, capital C. Every every person, whether they've been baptized or not, whether they were sprinkled or immersed, if they came to Christ by grace through faith, they're a part of the big C church, every single person that's meeting. in our, our church here in Orlando meeting all over Orlando today, right? But every Christian has to, needs to be a member of a local body. And so for many of you, that is this place where we come and we, because we can't pour, pour out our gifts and we can't be used and we can't, we can't have authentic community. We can't have those things. We can't participate. We, can't, we cannot obey verses 7 and 8 apart from being a part of a local body. And it's participatory because he demands that we use our gifts. Did you see that in verse 8? However, God has gifted you, He demands that you use it in His church. Prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, giving, leadership, acts of mercy. These are all ways we can actively participate in the community of faith. And the point is, do something to serve somebody in the body of Christ. Yes, we come here and we gather and we serve one another here, and then we go should go out together, out in the world, and serve the world together. It's a community of service. It's it's a participatory community. We're all connected to one another. Right? Each is a member of another. We're connected, right? This means we affect one another. And the community, corporately at large, the church that is North Park, for instance, in this case, is affected and impacted by the individual members. The church and its temperature and its spiritual fervor, its mission mindedness, is determined not by I, but by us. Not by me, but by we. Right? It's it's a participatory thing by individuals living our individual lives in community and serving one another. This means how I live, whether or not I serve, my attitude in my service, how I love my church, how I participate, my passion in participation, my team-mindedness. It affects more than just me. It affects the community at large. Now, listen, I want to illustrate for you. Everybody, if you sit on this side and you're on the end, you've got a stack of cups under your seat. Take one and pass them to the right. I want everybody to get a cup, okay? Okay? One of these little cups. It should look like this under your seat there. Ah, look at that. It all worked just perfectly. And I've got a few extras if we're missing any, all right? I think y'all have got enough. So if anybody needs any, everybody's got a cup, all right? So, this is your life, right? You've been, this represents you, right? And so you become a Christian. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life. And this text says you get gifts, right? And you're supposed to use them. So think about this. It's filled with all that you've got to bring to the table, your gifts and abilities, all that sort of stuff. And man, your, your attitude, everything's in the cup, right? It's who you are, right? And then there's a corporate body he talks about because we're members of one another. So, right? so that's represented by the big red beach bucket here. It's red because it's covered, I don't know, it's saved by the blood of Jesus, I guess. We'll spiritualize it. Um, and so we got the big bucket up here. And so we all come together and we pour in our cup, right? Because that, that, we, we affect one another. We're members of one another. It, we're individuals, but we come, we, we're together. We're connected, right? All this, is, all this is connected. So, for instance, I'm the pastor. I get one cup, Right? Now, I tend to pour a lot of mine out in public. <laughs> it's just the way it works, right? It's just part of I have, the, the gifts God has given me. I have, I have to use them in a very public way, right? Teaching is a public gift. Some are more private. I mean, some happen. Uh, encouragement and things like that it might happen between two people, and the rest of the body might not even know about it. I get that. But we all only get one cup. I don't get three or four or five, right? My gifts, my abilities are in there. So if I come in and, and I pour my cup in, right? and it's got my gifts and abilities in it, but let's say it's also got some unforgiveness towards two or three of you, and some bitterness towards this person over here, and an angry attitude about this over here, then all that goes in too. (laughs) And then somebody else comes over, man, they're hot-hearted for Christ, and man, they love their neighbor, and they're serving, man, they're just, whoo, I can't wait, man, they pour theirs in, and all that's mingled together, and then you pour yours in, and you pour yours in, and you pour yours in. And the body is the sum total of the parts See what I'm saying? It's kind of like if you had a big bucket of water and you pour in a dirty cup of water, guess what's dirty now? The whole bucket. Right? And the temperature of the water is affected by what? All the different temperatures of water. It's community, folks. It's a body. It's membership in the body. So listen, if you are in Christ, you've got a cup. And he's put stuff in it. Good stuff. Gifts and abilities. Now, we tend to bring a lot of other junk and put in there too. And then we come into our local church, we pour ourselves out, right? And we serve. Or we don't. And the church is missing something. Because we withhold our gifts and our abilities. Or we just never get involved in a local church. And we just live out here like this, which is in no way how God intended for us to live the Christian life. And my simple question to you today is this. If you're a member of North Park and you think about this text and the things the gospel should be moving towards and you think about the participation he calls for here is what is in your cup? What are the gifts and abilities God's used you given you to use? What is your attitude like towards your brothers and sisters in Christ in your church? What kind of attitude do you bring? What kind of gifts do you bring? Do you bring them at all? What kind of passion do you bring? What do you bring? Or are you not bringing anything? Are you not engaged? Are you dousing cold water on things? Are you bringing unrepentant sin and bitterness into the, the room, into the body? My point is we're all connected. And we're supposed to love each other enough and serve each other enough that we can work through the jump that's in the cup. Right? I'm not saying don't come. That's not the point. we got to sift through all this stuff together. We work through it together. But the point is, we're all in the bucket together. But we've got to decide as individuals what our contribution is going to be. And if we're going to move in that direction, we're going to step back. Because when a local church has members who don't engage, who don't give themselves, who don't pour in, the church is missing something that God gave it. I believe that God gives the church everything it needs to grow to mature, to reach its neighbors and do all those things. And that means everything we need to move forward as a church is here. It's here. Now, there could be ways that we withhold things, but God gives us what we need. What has he given you to bring to the table? Let me ask you today. Have you experienced God's mercy? Maybe today the decision you need to make is to experience the mercy of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The first thing Jesus does is He comes into your life, and you've got that cup, and He begins to transform you on the inside, and He gives you gifts, and He begins to clean up your life and all that. You don't clean your life up and come to Jesus, He comes in, and He cleans you up. Is Christ in your life? Have you turned away from your sin and embraced Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you put your faith in Christ and His death, His burial, and His resurrection to save you from your sin? That's step one. That's when transformation begins to take place. The second question is simply this, am I still being moved by God's mercy in these directions? Yielding my life to Christ, continual transformation, all these things, sober self-judgment, humility, true humility, and participation in the corporate body, using my gifts to serve others. Let's pray.